reason why I think this podcast is going to be helpful or useful to people. Yes. Hi, Chart. Is because we're going to discuss what I think is the solution to the problem of Christianity in the 21st century, which is um, we have within within Anglicanism we have these streams that we both come from and that we launch toward. We're Catholic, we're charismatic, and we're evangelical. Now, I heard someone say to me the other day, that was really an interesting statement, that that being charismatic is not part of the history of our church. And And I find that really odd because I think you can, to some degree, make an argument for that, but when I read, like, for instance, the Venerable Beat, mm-hmm. the story of the, how do you say the, how do you say the, the title in English? The History of the Church of the English Peoples or something no, no, like that? that. Yes. Um, the, the descriptions of the church as it's exploding across the British Isles is incredibly charismatic. Yes. And just from the concept of preaching process has got to at least be evangelical. Right. You know? Yes. Um, but I don't know if you have a thought about that because when I look at when I look at the way that Christianity has shifted within the United States mm-hmm. since let's just say the the, the 1900s, mm-hmm. that both evangelicalism and the charismatic movement are at the very least children, if not grandchildren, of Anglicanism. Yeah, and, and probably through in a lot of cases through the Anabaptist movement. Amen. The, 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 the Anglicanism, of course, Anabaptist went this way, and Anglicans went a different. Route, but yeah. I mean, the, a lot of the Anabaptist movement is very suspicious of charismatic. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, that might be understating. Itself. Right. <laughs> um, actually, I, I think Anglicanism is more open, in general, more open to charisma, charismatic gifts and, yeah. you know, the, the, than a lot of the Anabaptists. Who, the Anabaptists are intensely rational, or right. of, and of course, our children of the Enlightenment, not the Reformation. Right. Um, and therefore, and, and a lot of, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people who argue for things in a purely, they don't mean to, but they argue purely physically. The, yes. The, the, they don't seem to see that, it's basically a scientific revolution. They are totally captured by the scientific revolution. Rather than the intellectual one. Yes. Um, and yes, I mean, the scientific revolution has given us remarkable things. Yes. Um, but it doesn't explain all of reality. Yes. Um, and it can't. Explain all of reality, um, and it's, it's. In fact, we were talking about this at the, at the study on the book. Because uh, case for Christ, case for faith. Okay, um, faith. and it was. Um, I can't remember the, the guy uh, Strobel was interviewing, but he was arguing against against evolution. Well, first of all, I have a problem that evolution is uh, theologically a neutral. Right. View. Exactly. But in fact, the entire chapter wasn't an argument against evolution. It was an argument against how did life come into being? Yeah. Which is one of, if you talk to honest physic or honest bi- biologists and physicists, they haven't got an answer. Yeah. There isn't one, um, and it's one of the great mysteries of modern science. We can't explain where life came, how life came about. Yeah. Doesn't mean it was divine, but it does right. mean that people who say, well, it's all natural, yeah. are going way beyond the evidence. Uh, and, and then you go, how do we get a mind? 
Because that's, right. that's another one of the great mysteries is this, what is the mind? Right. Um, what is that experience that I'm having right now, which isn't biological. I can point to bits of the right. brain that can explain some of it, but it doesn't explain the actual experience. Which is sort of funny because movements like existentialism and, and like, I don't know, we haven't talked about Heidegger, but like no. Heidegger's ontic existentialism, the way that he sort of unpacks um, existentialism as an ontological reality. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I don't know if you've read Being in Time, but the way that he he talks about this as a grounding um, mm -hmm. in the world, I think is really anyway. Um, but all of that's a post enlightenment reality. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it's not as if existentialism is a pre enlightenment. No. Yeah. You know, but but I think that's so often. This is my issue, and I talk to so many of my clergy buddies um, that they talk about issues like, you know, moving back to char charismatic movement. They talk about issues of like demon possession. Mm -hmm as the way that we understood psychology before we were smart enough to know better. Right. You know? And, and sometimes that's absolutely true. Sure. And sometimes it's purely biology. Right. But sometimes they, those two explanations don't work. And, and, and yes, probably yeah. we're, sometimes we're too quick. Amen. Yeah, yeah. To, to go on any one of those routes, we, you know, yes, I suffer from depression. I yeah. have all my life. Yeah. It's purely biological. Yeah. If I take a right, the right pills, the problem pretty much goes away. Right. And, but that doesn't mean somebody else suffering from depression, it's biological. Right. It, it's, you know, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, about we've got to look at each one case by case. It's, right. it's, we can't look at it as a... I mean, we can look at it as a whole, but we have to recognize that the whole is much more complex than we want to make it. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think this is where, um, you know, so I came out of that Assemblies of God, mm -hmm. Pentecostal sort of movement where the... the the chief emphasis was on the concept of the charismatic gifts. Like, right. how do we operate um, within the framework of the church so that we evince that the charismatic gifts are operating in, in, our, in our lives mm -hmm. today? Um, the, the problem that I, that I ultimately developed with that is I would get this sense of almost like um, disappointment or frustration if once we were done with worship, if there wasn't some sort of miraculous encounter. And I remember the first, you know, we, the type of Pentecostal church that I went to was sort of like a coffee shop barnyard church. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was really good for like, you know, stobby white people in the suburbs. You know, that's, that's a little bit hyperbolic, but not super hyperbolic. And so we didn't do a lot of that stuff on the normal mm -hmm. Sunday morning worship service. We sort of followed a little bit more the Willow Creek type seeker sensitive mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. We didn't exactly play only James Taylor, but close enough um, but when we would go to camp you know it was the summer camps and then we would have snow camp winter camp where every single time we were there we were there with all the other Pentecostals mm -hmm. they would call the, the, they would get some evangelists to come preach and the first three or four camps I went to we would just see these incredible miracles you know and, and, and people walking out of wheelchairs um, people being healed of, of Eyesight issue. I mean, one time I heard a guy interpret a tongue, mm -hmm. and the guy was deaf who yeah. did the interpret. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then one year we had camp, and all week long, no miracles happened, mm -hmm. or at least not that I saw. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking away from that camp, and I had this time of worship that was, you know, I, I, but I left thinking, wow, that was disappointing. Yeah. You know, and I think, and this is where I want to emphasize, um, I think that the charismatic movement 
is absolutely essential in the life of a Christian. You know, and, and I say this in my preaching all the time, if the church isn't doing miracles, it's just not the church, yeah. you know. Yes. That was how Jesus showed who he was, that's how the apostles showed who, that's what we as Christians should be doing right. now. Right. But if it's only about that charismatic revelation, there's no grounding, no. right? And I think that's where, by the time I got to Bible college, I felt so emotionally disappointed and burnt out because I didn't feel like there was a stable foundation that was clear Christian identity. It was only these moves of the Spirit or not. Right. And so then was it all the failure if God didn't right. heal the blind man, blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and this is where I think Anglicanism has a really helpful solution because it allows us to, on the one hand, embrace and work within the framework of those charismatic gifts, but then at the same time come back and say, and we're going to come back and say all those same old boring prayers we've always said, because what's more important than just the move of the Spirit by itself is that it's grounded in these timeless truths. Right. The, the, if you like, there are two contexts. There's the Catholic contact, context for the, evangel- uh, for the um, charismatic movement, yeah. or charismatic gifts, and there is the charismatic context Catholicism, yeah. they are, they give each other a foundation. Yeah. Um, that, that, yes, because it, the danger with the, the, the charismatic gifts is they get detached from the theology, if you like, in, yeah. in, a, in a non-technical sense. Yeah. That the Holy Spirit only works in under certain, not only works, because the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Right. <laughs> but Spirit, then, spirits where it wishes. Right. <laughs> but there is a, a context in which if it's going to work, it will operate. It's not yeah. going to operate on any... In fact, I found a parking space right before Christmas outside of one mall. <laughs> Probably has very little to do with the Holy Spirit because it doesn't have that content. Maybe, but... <laughs> so I do this thing with my family all the time that whenever we pull into a restaurant, nine times out of ten... A spot just opens up right in the front, and I always turn to my wife and I go, chosen. <laughs> but, I mean, fair enough, yeah. you know, because yes. if we don't have a grounding of, of the charismatic movement right. or um, in some sort of clear truth, then, it, then, it, then it's not pointing to something. Right. You know, I think that's the thing about miracles, that word well, miracle, it means look at this. We see different moves of charismania that we can easily point to and um, it, it, you know, and create a farce of, yes. you know. Yes. Um, but I, but I, I struggle with this because I so I um, I experienced the Lord for the first time in at a Baptist camp mm-hmm. in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a joke there, and <laughs> the only church I'd ever been to before was a Charis- yeah. was a Assemblies okay. God Church, yeah. and so I just started going there, not knowing anything mm-hmm. about denominations. I mean, I, I think that I had some knowledge of the idea that Catholics wore funny clothes <laughs> and that there was not Catholic also. And that was, I mean, I knew that everybody was Lutheran because it was Minnesota. <laughs> but, but I think, but this thing I've struggled in is now I've been in, in Catholic Christianity since 2008, 2007, 2008. And during that time, I have seen more people who have gone through the motions of Christian faith without the sort of clear devotion that I saw in charismatic circles. And I, and I really struggle with this because there's this grounding that I experienced yeah. in, in Catholicism that 
was not present in charismania, but there was belief right. in the charismania that was completely or, or was was absent mm -hmm. in a lot of the Catholicism mm -hmm. that I experienced, and, th and that's where I struggle because I, th I think one has got to inform the other. Yes. And, I, and I love using this example. You've heard it from me like a hundred times, but where the first time I attended a mass at an Episcopal church, we sat down. It was All Saints Sunday, mm -hmm. and the um, we got to the part where we were saying the Nicene Creed, mm -hmm. and I had heard it. I think I had never heard the Nicene Creed. I only heard the Apostles' Creed okay. before. And we're sitting down in that room and in the nave of this, of this beautiful Episcopal church. And we start saying the Nicene Creed. And this man in the back is sitting in this pew looking at the sports scores on mm -hmm. his phone. And I remember as a charismatic who had some very limited understanding of theology, I was just blown away by the beauty of the Nicene Creed, mm -hmm. the incredible, like, God from God, light, like, mm -hmm. and, and I had a bit of knowledge of, like, Nicaea, Constantinople, some of the conversations that were taking place, just blown away, we're still saying this yeah. stuff, and this dude's looking at, I think it was, like, ESPN sports scores <laughs> in 2007, and I have no idea, like, if Man U or Arsenal were playing or what, but, but like, but it blew me away because there was this division right. between all, all of a sudden I went to the, the altar in the Pentecostal church with my hands in the air, tears streaming down my face, and we were screaming, I want to see Jesus lifted high, mm -hmm. with no clarity about what that mm -hmm. meant. Yeah. Or, but I said it with so much passion, and I believed mm -hmm. something about what I was saying versus the deep, deep theology right. that we were espousing with no heart yes. at all. Yes. Well, I, I think the great strength and the great weakness of Anglicanism and Catholicism yeah. is actually, in some cases, the buildings. Because oh, amen. The, 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 the beauty of the buildings... Um, what they're focused on. Yeah. I mean, I think people miss, you, know, you can spend years studying the symbolism yeah. in, in, an, in, an, in usually an ancient church. Yeah. Um, but when we miss that, we've pretty much um, we've left it with just a beautiful building. Yeah. When, when the, 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 and the building, but the building can't become the focus at the same time. It's yeah. got to be the people in the building yeah. uh, that, that are the focus. So, if they don't inform each other, yeah. um, both are a waste of time. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that passion that, that those buildings should engender um, are wasted. And, and the lives of the people who should be engendered, and at the same time who should yeah. be expressing themselves in the way this building demands, yeah. uh, are being wasted yeah. as well. And, and, and I think so, yeah, I mean, every church has several people sitting in the back of you who are only there because force of habit or because yeah. their wife drank right. um Well, and I think this is where the concept of, of Anglicanism being not only Catholic, not only charismatic, but also evangelical mm -hmm. becomes really true, important, is because it all fluctuates on it pointing to some sort of objective truth yes. that is beyond... Um, it goes to what the signs of the charismatics are pointing to. It goes to what the orthodoxy or the orthopraxy yes. 
of the, of the Catholicism is pointing to that there's some deeper undergirding truth that holds it all together. And, I, and that's one thing that, that I think to me is so important is evangelicalism, especially in the Americas, when we use that word, it has a lot of baggage that, that it need not have. Right. You know, like in German, yeah. if, if you're going to study theologie, you're going to study either katholisch or evangelisch, right? right? And when they say it, they, they mean Protestant, but they don't mean it just Protestant. They mean like connected to the proclamation of the gospel. Right. You know, and right. I think this is what is so key to me is if we have all these charismatic gifts, but they're not pointing to some objective truth that is timeless, that is unchanging, that is rooted in not only the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, but also in the ongoing story of God's salvation narrative from before Christ to after Christ. And unless the Catholicism of the church, it's, it's, it's right action, this orthopraxy, is engaged symbolically, liturgically, metaphysically in that truth that it's just empty ritual. Yes. You know? Yes. Now, granted, you know, if, if it's only evangelicalism, if we're only pointing to objective truth, that's just pure Gnosticism. Right. 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 And so it's, yes. it's got to intersect all three. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it can't or it should, must avoid Gnosticism. Yeah. Uh, it, because... Nasal gazing. Nasal, right. Navel gazing. <laughs> <or> nasal gazing. <laughs> that probably means something yeah. to you. Uh, but, but knowledge for knowledge's sake yeah. is, is not really of any great value. Yeah. If you don't do anything with the knowledge, it's, 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 it's nice to have, but it, it's of no real value. I'm a fan of useless information. I will never use in my life, but I kind of absorb it. At parties, I have you know, this useless stuff I can throw out there occasionally. I've, had, I've been having this, this conversation with people. Um, we're reading Psalm 119 on Tuesday mornings for, for Bible study, which is an ode to the law. You know, 176 verses. Yeah. Of, of Ode to the Law. And we've been talking about this, and we're getting to this point, um, you know, the lore is Ezra wrote it after the exile. They came back in, and they're reestablishing the norms of, you know, Hebrew culture, not, you know, get away from the Targum, the Targumim, the Aramaic way of right. understanding the law, embracing this idea of, of we're, we're the Hebrew people, speak the Hebrew language, we live based on the Hebrew Torah, mm-hmm. that, that Ezra starts to to almost venerate the law mm-hmm. and, and start to describe it the same way one would describe God, you yes. know. And, and, and in so many ways, I find that so beautiful. And the, and the way that the, the psalmist points to the law as a source of joy and happiness, oh, how I love your law all day long, it is on my mind, your word is a lamp unto my feet, right. 105, that, yeah. that I, I love that. And the law is not an end unto itself, right? right? It's supposed to us and point us and bring us to God. And I think that's where all of these things that we're talking about, being Catholic, being charismatic, being evangelical, that if they don't ultimately point to God mm-hmm. in what we do and what we believe and what we how we act, that it, that it just becomes an end unto itself, which is defunct. Meaning. Right. And I, and I 
I, I affirm absolutely that the Bible is inspired. I have yeah. no real understanding of yeah. what that means, but it is inspired. Yeah. I would be quite comfortable if it's just reliable. I don't think it needs to be more than reliable, yeah. although I affirm that it is. Um, but when too many people, Scripture becomes the end in itself. Yeah. You can't say anything. <coughs> you, I, I've been in debates with people about not not even what does inspiration mean, but what texts are inspired? Yeah. Because Scripture doesn't tell us which texts yeah. are inspired. So is it the Protestant canon? Is it the Syriac canon? Yeah. Is it the broad Ethiopian right. canon with some really odd books? Now, you know, what are we going to make of? Was it Bell and the Dragon? I yeah, Bell and the Dragon. Somebody was smoking something pretty interesting. Right. <laughs> it was Psalm fifty one fifty one is completely out <laughs> yes, of there. That's right. But you know, you can't have a conversation about inspiration. Unless you first yeah. describe what you're, what what you think yeah. is inspired. I actually tend to go with N.T. Wright's definition of inspired. We have the Bible that God intended us to have, and I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. I'm not going to go beyond yeah. um, that. Allows in the additions later, and, and, and but at the same time, you know, it does leave the edges very very fuzzy. Right, uh, Bishop Wright was on a Colbert Report mm -hmm. back. It was probably like 2003, 2004, and. Colbert was joking with him because, you know, he's devout Roman Catholic. Right, yes. And he made some statement like, what do you Anglicans believe anyways? <laughs> and N.T. Wright said the, that perfect phrase that an Anglican bishop would say, uh, if it's an Anglican, if it's true, we believe, believe it. it. You know, and, and I, love, <laughs> I love that statement, but I think this is where applying this lens, yes. Catholic, charismatic, evangelical works, because we can tell if it's true terms of a Catholic lens, because it's time-tested, right? right? Yes. We've been doing the same thing over and over. And this is where an evangelical lens is not helpful to us. I mean, right. let, let's say, let's contrast them, where an evangelical urge is going to just be to read the scripture on its own face, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, prima facie, right. without interpreting it through the lens of the church. Right. And I think that's problematic, because the church has is a very helpful mother to us. Right. It's been handing down to us for years. How have we historically interpreted these scriptures? Where did we get it wrong? Yes. Where how have we gotten it right? You know, and this is where like um, Aquinas has got this book, the Catena Aria, his commentary on the four gospels, which right. is all him taking all the works of the church fathers mm -hmm. and then just putting them as a commentary right. verse by verse by verse. And it's this beautiful homage to how the church has interpreted. The scriptures, and that's such a benefit to us because it gives us both the versatility of interpretation and the time-tested right. proof of it. That's the Catholic lens. Yes. And that's where you start with the creeds. The creeds give you the Amen. outer boundaries. Amen. If you go outside the creeds, you are in right. potentially in big trouble. Right. Creeds don't answer the question. Yeah. The creeds just tell you this far and no yeah. further. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a conversation with one guy one time who rejected the creeds, rejected the tradition of the church, and I said, well, then how do you know when your tradition, oh, sorry, your interpretation is? He said, well, I hope my brothers and sisters in my church would hold me. <laughs> what church? <laughs> well, not only that, but isn't that exactly what the traditions of the church and the creeds are for in the first place? Yeah. Why do we need to reinvent the wheel? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the church is, for, for, you know, the Nicene Creed is 1,700 years, yeah. almost. Yeah. Um, why do we need to reinvent, particularly, and yes, I know the creeds don't answer some questions we'd really like 
answered. Yeah. They were dealing with specific issues that the church was dealing with at that time. Yeah. But at least it's a starting point. And you're right, then the traditions of the church, the teachings of Augustine or Aquinas yeah. or Anselm or whoever it why well, they all start with A, <laughs> Ambrose. Yeah. I'm not sure they remember. Yeah, so Athanasius, yeah. Augustine, Nicholas, I'm sure it was in there too. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Um, but, but, yeah, you, you, at least let's deal, at least address with what they're saying, even if you can understand it, yeah. which is itself quite a There's an issue, yeah. Um, but you don't, let's not reinvent the world if we don't need to. We have enough problems we've got to answer for the first time today. Yeah. Let's not answer Try to answer questions that were answered 1700 years ago. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Well, and I think, and this is where, so let's use, let's start with that foil, the Catholicism. We've got this timeless um, testing of truth. Mm-hmm. But, but it's so easy for us to then just leave it on the shelf and say, well, we've already answered all those questions, so we don't have to address them again. And this is where I think the charismatic wing is really helpful in, in, in discussing what it means in our pursuit of God, because if we're not still doing the work mm-hmm. that the scriptures are pointing us to demonstrate, mm-hmm. these truths um, that we're assessing that we've held on to, they won't mean anything right. unless there unless there's this ongoing organic movement mm-hmm. of God still speaking and and revealing Himself through the charismatic yes. gifts. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. And, and I think that's and they can they can in my mind sort of function as a corrective. To sort of um, uh, uh, heartless, um, um, I don't want to say intellectualism, but sort of um, academizing mm-hmm. theology into this uh, untouchable series of conversations that never actually reach um, people. You know, books. It's two volumes. Craig Keener's Miracles. No. Okay. This is a, like a fifteen hundred page okay. exploration of miracles and their reports. And he goes through everything from this looks really genuine to no. Yeah, <laughs> somebody's reported this, but there is no. Re- he, he is not gullible as to, to what he's accepting. Uh, and one of the things he pointed out is.